And now we continue to worship our God in the ministry of His Word. In October of 1900, a Methodist minister by the name of Charles Parham opened up a Bible college in Topeka, Kansas. Parham was part of the holiness movement. He had come to embrace the view that Christians could experience a second work of grace that would lead them into a state of sinless perfection. Building upon this rather dubious foundation, Parham asked his students to learn from the Bible whether there is any evidence for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a blessing he was convinced that every believer ought to receive. Well, the result of this exercise was a growing conviction among Parham and his students that the true evidence of spirit baptism was the ability to speak in tongues just as the apostles did on the day of Pentecost. And from that that day forward, they began to actively pray for and to seek the gift of tongues. Following week, one of the female students at the college by the name of Agnes Osmond became the first one to speak in tongues, believing at the time that she was speaking and even writing in Chinese. Soon others followed her lead, including Parham himself, and the Pentecostal movement was born. Fast forward a couple years, Parham opened a second Bible college in Houston, Texas, and one of the students who enrolled there was a black holiness preacher by the name of W.J. Seymour. Seymour also came to believe that tongues was a sign of spirit baptism and became a zealous promoter of tongues. Well, after traveling to Los Angeles and being rebuffed in one of the churches, Seymour began holding meetings in a private home where several more people embraced the new Pentecostal teaching and began to speak in tongues. This little house church gathered so much attention, they soon had to move into a new building on Azusa Street where Seymour continued to preach preach that tongues was the sign of spirit baptism. And from these meager beginnings in Los Angeles, the Pentecostal movement grew rapidly spread to Chicago, to Winnipeg, to New York City, and beyond. Today, as you may know, Pentecostalism is the fastest growing branch of Christianity in the world. Well, in between those events in the 19, in, around the turn of the 20th century in the 1960s, the phenomenon of speaking in tongues was largely confined to Pentecostal churches, but beginning in the 60s, the practice began to spread into the mainline denominations in what we call today the charismatic movement. And although charismatics are not always in full agreement with Pentecostals, the phenomenon of tongues is now found in every Christian tradition and denomination in the world, from the Roman Catholic Church, to the Presbyterian Church, to the Lutheran Church, to the Anglican Church, and yes, even to the Baptist Church. Now for those of us who have not grown up in the Pentecostal or charismatic tradition and and have seen some of the questionable things that have come out of this movement, there's a strong temptation to write it off completely and simply to keep our distance. This was certainly my own point of view through my teens and early 20s. Before leaving for university, I had never observed anyone speaking in tongues, nor had I ever met anyone who claimed to have the gift of tongues. But yet in those formative years of my life, I'd embraced a negative opinion of of Pentecostals, along with the suspicion that the tongues they spoke in their churches had more to do with the demons than they did to do with the Holy Spirit. For a while, my attitude towards charismatic Christians was not very kind at all. When I was a student at the University of Guelph, my attitude started to soften, and I attribute that change to God's work in my heart. You see, during my time in university, I came into contact with Pentecostal and charismatic students for the first time, and I came to see firsthand that in spite of our differences, they loved the Lord Jesus just as much as I did. As part of InterVarsity and later Campus Crusade, we would pray together, we would share the gospel together, we would study the Bible together, we would enjoy Christian fellowship together. And being the straight-shooting fundamental Baptist that I was, I remember in those days telling one of my friends who was part of the Vineyard Church in the city that I thought the stuff that was happening in the movement was demonic through and through. Although he was willing to admit that some of the manifestations were indeed counterfeit and a result of peer pressure, he also cautioned me at that time not to blaspheme the Holy Spirit by attributing genuine works of God to Satan and the demons. You know, somehow that conversation with my friend struck a chord in me. Ever since that day, I have been far more open to listening and learning from charismatics, far more cautious to label as demonic what I don't fully understand. 
And over the past few years, God has brought a number of other charismatic friends and brothers into my life who've helped to sharpen me and to challenge me in my thinking, even as I hope and trust that God has used me to sharpen and to challenge them. I share that story with you this morning, not because I believe my own personal experience is definitive or authoritative in any sense, but rather I want you to know right at the outset of this morning's message, I perfectly understand the hesitations, the dangers, the reservations that surround charismatic teaching and theology. I may be a younger guy, but I'm not new to the debate, nor am I naive about what's at stake in this conversation. I was raised in a theological tradition that strongly believed the gift of tongues and prophecy had ceased during the time of the apostles. And like some of you here today, I've read, I've studied John MacArthur's criticism of charismatic theology along with many other books and articles that argue along the same lines. Although I don't fully agree with all of their conclusions, I do think that there is much that we can learn from those who believe that the gifts have ceased. Not too sure about you. I greatly admire and respect John MacArthur. I agree with him. There is indeed a great deal of false teaching and showmanship and charlatanism within the movement. And all of these things that go completely contrary to God's revealed word must be exposed, denounced, and reformed, preferably by those within the charismatic movement itself. It's also my view that there is a great and a growing danger within our evangelical circles of pursuing unusual experiences rather than pursuing the ordinary means of grace that God has given for our spiritual growth. Things such as preaching and prayer and the ministry of the Word. I have no secret agenda to push on you this morning. I have no axe to grind when it comes to the gift of tongues and prophecy. With God's help, we're going to deal with this text just as we deal with every other text in the Bible. Not reading our own bias onto the text, making it say what we think it should say, but rather letting the text speak for itself and then submitting to its authority in everything that it affirms. And if at the end of our time together this morning and next week you're not convinced that my understanding of tongues and prophecy is correct, I promise that I will still love you in Christ. And I hope that you will still love me. For as we learned last Sunday, the gifts of the Spirit are destined to pass away in time, but love endures forever. And since the family of God includes both charismatics and non-charismatics, we would do well, I think, to try and understand and appreciate one another because we're going to be spending eternity together. Well, with that introduction, I'd ask you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, and listen carefully as I read for you one of the most controversial and hotly debated chapters in the Word of God. I'm not going to read the whole chapter this morning, but I am going to read down to verse 33. The Word of the Lord. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, but none is without meaning. If I don't know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. 
Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever outsider enters, he is convicted by all. Convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his hearts are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged, and the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There is no way that in one Sunday we're going to do justice to the complexities of this chapter. So I've decided to spend the next two Sundays immersed in this text, looking at the gift of tongues this week, and then turning to the gift of prophecy next week. These next two Sundays, we're going to be discussing a lot of difficult questions and issues that relate to these gifts, but as we do that, I want to make sure that we are not losing sight of the main point Paul is making in this chapter for the benefit of the church. Paul's aim here in 1 Corinthians 14 is not so much to give us a full-orb theology of tongues and prophecy, but rather to counterbalance an unbiblical emphasis that was, was at work in Corinth surrounding these gifts. Paul's aim in this chapter is to show the Corinthians when the church is gathered in corporate worship, the emphasis is always to be on intelligible speech, the kind of speech and communication that can be understood by everybody. In the city of Corinth, tongues had developed into a badge of pride and superiority. It was considered to be the greatest of all the spiritual gifts. Now the Apostle Paul is correcting that false theology by informing them the gift of tongues is not nearly as important as they think it is. That's why at the end of chapter 12 and again here at the beginning of chapter 14, the Apostle instructs the believers to earnestly desire the greater spiritual gifts, which is to say the gifts that edify the church and that build up the congregation as a whole. As we're going to see, that little phrase edify or build up crops up again and again throughout the chapter as Paul upholds the necessity of intelligible speech as he takes the emphasis off of tongues and puts it back onto prophecy and the ministry of the word. But you know, because Paul is seeking to correct an imbalance here and is writing this chapter in a rather negative tone, it can be tempting for us to jump to a wrong conclusion and to think the Apostle Paul has some kind of a hang-up with tongues or that Paul would be much happier if the gift of tongues would simply disappear from the scene altogether. But that's not what the Apostle is arguing. For in verse 5, Paul tells the Corinthians, I want you all to speak in tongues. In verse 18, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So obviously, it wasn't the gift itself that Paul was objecting to. It was the way that the Corinthians were abusing it. Paul detested the way that they were prioritizing the things that were showy and unusual. He detested the way that tongues were fostering arrogance and division in the church. He detested the way that tongues were being spoken public without an explanation. 
But Paul did not take issue with the gift of tongues itself, nor did he make any attempt to prohibit its proper use in the church. And so as we look at Paul's teaching on tongues this morning in this chapter, let's make sure we keep the main argument of the chapter in plain view, the Apostle's conviction that intelligible speech is of primary importance in the church of Jesus Christ. Well, already I've mentioned the gift of tongues a number of times. At this point, I want to stop and ask a very important and foundational question. What exactly is the gift of tongues? Sounds like it should be a simple enough question. Actually, it's far more challenging than you might think. Because we need to make sure that we are defining the gift on the, not on the basis of modern day claims and experiences. The gift of tongues must be defined not by the claims of Christians who think that they have it, but rather by what we find written in the inspired word of God. Temptation is always to read our religious experiences back on the Word of God and to make the Word fit with our experiences. In actual fact, we need to take the opposite approach. As Christians, we need to interpret our experience through the lens of God's Word. Then we hold on to what is good and we reject what is false. The Word of God is our final authority, not the testimonies and experiences and claims of men. But when it comes to this particular subject, the challenge is we don't really have a lot of biblical information to work with. What we've got is Paul's teaching here in 1 Corinthians and Luke's description of Pentecost in the book of Acts. Only a couple passages in the Bible that deal directly with tongues. And when we take the descriptive material from Luke's gospel and we put it alongside the didactic material from Paul, The best biblical definition that I can offer you is this. Tongues is a miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit that enables the Christian believer to speak in unlearned languages. Okay, that's an important definition, so let me repeat it again. The gift of tongues is a miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit that enables the Christian believer to speak in unlearned languages. That's the very best biblical definition of tongues I can offer you. And within that definition are two key words that we need to unpack, the first of which is the word unlearned. Biblically speaking, the gift of tongues is not the person who likes to study languages and has an easy time picking them up. I know a few people like that. I'm deeply envious of people like that. They don't have the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is is a gift that enables a person to speak languages immediately. It is the capacity to speak a foreign language without investing any time or any effort to learn it. According to the Bible, tongues is miraculous and unlearned, but secondly, we learn in Scripture the gift of tongues deals with real languages, and I know that's the case because of the Greek word that the Bible uses. In the Greek language, the word is translated tongue is glossa. And if you take the time to study that word, you'll discover it refers to one of two things. Either it refers to the body part that each one of us has in our mouth, or else it refers to a real spoken language. And so, friends, in the biblical sense of the word, the gift of tongues does not refer to a random string of noise coming off the vocal cords. It refers to a real spoken language. And in order to qualify as a language, it must have grammatical linguistic structure that conveys meaning to the reader, to the hearer. In other words, tongues is a gift that must be capable of interpretation. Genuine languages have nouns and verbs and adjectives and articles and structures because without those things in place, there can be no meaning in the speech and no interpretation of what is being said. You know, as a father, I've had the privilege of watching all three of my kids learn how to speak English. When toddlers are getting ready to speak, they always babble away in something that sounds a bit like a real language, but really isn't a language at all. What they're really doing is imitating you by making lots of sounds and noises, but there's no linguistic pattern in what they're saying. And so what do we do as parents? We smile at them. We think it's cute. We babble back at them sometimes, pretending that we're having a conversation, but no one is fooled into thinking that they're telling us something that has cognitive significance. 
Brothers and sisters, it's very important to understand the biblical gift of tongues is not like the inarticulate babblings of a toddler because the Greek word for tongue does not refer to that kind of speech. And for that reason alone, I suspect that the vast majority of people who think that they are speaking in tongues are actually doing no such thing. Now certainly I don't want to be insensitive or hurtful towards anyone here in the larger body of Christ who claims to have this gift, but I think we need to be honest about this to admit that much of what is passed off today as the gift of tongues is really no gift at all. It is a babbling and a free vocalization, and at the end of the day, it's not really all that different from what comes out of the mouth of my two-year-old. It's about as far as we can get from the meaning of the Greek word itself, but there's more to the story than this. Because since the explosion of the charismatic movement in the 1960s, various psychologists and linguists have actually studied the phenomenon of tongues, which is often referred to as glossolalia. These researchers have recorded many examples of people speaking in what they claim to be tongues and have then analyzed those recordings in detail. And what these studies have found is really quite enlightening. To begin with, the recordings of glossolalia have not produced meaningful linguistic patterns that would be consistent with a genuine language. Secondly, the sounds being made by the speaker correspond to sounds in their native language so that the tongue spoken by a Korean sound different than the tongue spoken by a Canadian sound different from the tongue spoken by a German. Thirdly, attempts to interpret these recordings by those who claim to have the second gift of interpretation have resulted in conflicting messages. In an excellent book on the subject that's been written by a former professor, D.A. Carson recounts the story of a New Testament scholar who found himself in a meeting where tongues were being spoken and decided to make his own contribution by quoting the first chapter of John's Gospel in Koine Greek. And after he had finished his recitation in Greek, a woman stood up in the church and delivered the interpretation. And lo and behold, it had nothing whatsoever to do with the Gospel of John. Now, of course, that's just an isolated anecdote, but it goes to show not all that glitters is gold. There is counterfeit expressions of these gifts. Fourthly, it has long been observed that this kind of phenomenon exists not only in charismatic and Pentecostal churches, but also in false religions such as Hinduism and Mormonism. Now, friends, I'm not sharing that with you this morning in order to mock or to ridicule those who believe they're speaking in tongues, but I think we need to face some rather uncomfortable facts here. Many manifestations of tongues in our modern churches have nothing to do with the biblical gift. They are, in fact, counterfeit and psychologically induced. And in many cases, the people who speak this way have been trained to do so by leaders who told them at some point to open up their mouths and to let inarticulate babblings come out and then affirm that they had indeed received the baptism of the Spirit. Now, I used to think that was demonic. I don't think so anymore. I don't think for a moment that most of the Christians who claim to speak in tongues are demon-possessed. I don't think that they're even ill-intentioned. But I do think that they are poorly taught. They are seeking after an experience that other people around them seem to have and that their church leaders have told them that they should expect to have. Friends, I find no evidence in the Word of God that the gift of tongues enables someone to speak in anything other than a genuine language. And because of that, I don't think it honors the Holy Spirit when we attribute to Him inarticulate, repetitive babblings and noises that are devoid of any linguistic and grammatical structure. The Greek word glossa points to real language. From this starting point, we need to investigate a second related question. How the tongues described in the book of Acts correspond with the tongues described here in the book of 1 Corinthians. Because the tongues spoken on the day of Pentecost were all known languages from real countries and real nations, there are many interpreters who would like to restrict the meaning of the gift to known human languages. Not only would these scholars do as I just have by denying that tongues is a form of meaningless babbling, they would add to this, genuine tongues must be in a language that is spoken somewhere on planet Earth because that is what happened on the day of Pentecost. 
Now, I'll admit to you, there is a certain appeal to this interpretation, but after studying the relevant material in Scripture, I don't think it does justice to the phenomena described in 1 Corinthians, and I'll give you a few reasons why. To begin with, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12.28, there are various kinds of tongues, and that phrase suggests there may indeed be different manifestations of this one spiritual gift. Number two, on the day of Pentecost, we know that there was no need for interpretation because the people listening to the apostles could understand exactly what was being said. When we look at the tongues that are described in 1 Corinthians 14, we see something a little different because the apostle instructs the believers to ask God for yet another spiritual gift, which is the gift of interpretation. Verse 13, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. Now, this need for a second and corresponding gift strongly suggests to me we are dealing here with something slightly different than on the day of Pentecost, or as Paul puts it in chapter 12, we are dealing with a different kind of tongue. Third piece of evidence comes in chapter 13, verse 1, where the Apostle Paul uh, refers to the gift of tongues and then says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Now, we learned last week the Corinthians were claiming to speak in the language of the angels. Whether that claim was accurate or not, the inference here is that they were speaking in a language that had no counterpart on earth. And so on the basis of that biblical evidence, I conclude the New Testament distinguishes between two different kinds or manifestations of tongues. On the one hand, the human languages spoken at Pentecost, which Paul calls the tongues of men. On the other hand, the unknown language of Corinth, which they were claiming to be angelic. I do not believe that the tongues spoken in Corinth were precisely the same as the tongues spoken at Pentecost, nor do I think that the Corinthian gift is like so much of the inarticulate babbling that we hear today. Rather, the spiritual gift that was being manifested in ancient Corinth was a real language that did not have a counterpart here on earth. If you were there in their church listening to it, you'd not be able to understand what they were saying, but you would get the distinct sense that a real language was being spoken to you. That's why the gift of tongues required a gift of interpretation, whereas tongues spoken at Pentecost didn't. And so, brothers and sisters, that's my best effort to give you a biblical definition this morning. Tongues is a miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit that enables the Christian believer to speak in unlearned languages. And in the Bible, it appears in two slightly different forms. At Pentecost, human languages were being spoken without the need for an interpreter. In Corinth, an unknown language was being spoken that required the additional gift of interpretation. Well, this definition of tongues that I've just given you distinguishes between two manifestations, but we shouldn't conclude from this that the tongues of Pentecost and the tongues of Corinth are totally unrelated to one another because according to Scripture, both of them are examples of the same spiritual gift and they both serve the same general purpose. One of the things that I've often wondered when it comes to the gift of tongues is what purpose this gift serves in the church and why God in His wisdom ever gave it in the first place. Here again, we need to look to the Scripture for the answer, and I don't think it leaves us in the dark. Because as it's described in both Acts and 1 Corinthians, the gift of tongues serves a dual purpose. On the one hand, God has given it to us as a means of edification and encouragement. On the other hand, God has given it as a sign of His judgment and displeasure. Now, speaking first of all about edification and encouragement, I'd remind you of Luke's words recorded in Acts 2 that we heard earlier. It says that they were all amazed. They were all perplexed. And they said to one another, what does this mean? Because they were hearing the apostles tell in their own tongues the mighty works of God. In the context of Pentecost, not only did the gift of tongues signal the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy and validate the message of the apostles, it also encouraged the believers who witnessed it to join in the worship of God for His wonderful works. The tongues spoken at Pentecost were astonishing. They were miraculous. But they were also deeply encouraging for all the Jews who would later hear Peter's sermon and obey the command to repent and to be baptized. 
Edification was part of the purpose of tongues in the book of Acts. When we turn to 1 Corinthians, we find the same thing being taught by the Apostle Paul. Let's look at a couple verses in our text beginning with verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Verse 26, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. According to Paul's inspired teaching here in chapter 14, the gift of tongues has the capacity to edify and to build up in two specific instances. Number one, when it is being used in private prayer to God. And number two, when it is being used publicly with an interpreter. Now the fact that the gift of tongues is to be used in private devotion to God is my, in my own view beyond dispute here in 1 Corinthians 14. In verse 2, for example, Paul says, the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Here we learn that tongues is not used to communicate a message from God to his people, as is often taught by the charismatics, but is rather given as a means for God's people to speak to him. The gift of tongues is intimately related with prayer. And even on the day of Pentecost, it would seem that the apostles were not preaching a message in tongues for the sake of evangelism. Rather, they were praying in tongues and they were praising God for His wonderful works. And the reason why I say that is because when it was time for Peter to address the crowd and to communicate a message from the Lord, he doesn't do it in tongues. He speaks in Greek, which was the common language of that day. Here in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul defines tongues as a form of prayer. For that reason, it is a gift that can be exercised in private, either with or without interpretation. Now this private, this prayerful use of tongues is further confirmed in verse 14 of our text as the Apostle says, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. When the gift of tongues is being used in private prayer, the apostle indicates the person praying and speaking in tongues does not always understand what he's saying to the Lord. And because of that, Paul says in the previous verse, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. In a private setting, it is legitimate to use the gift of tongues without interpretation. But Paul indicates that this gift is even more edifying if you're able to understand what you're saying. I think that just makes sense. And so he encourages the Corinthians who are manifesting the gift to ask God for a second gift to go along with it, the gift of interpretation. Now the third piece of evidence that the gift of tongues is for private use, in my opinion, a definitive piece of evidence comes in verses 18 and 19. I thank God, Paul says, that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Remarkably, the Apostle Paul is claiming here to manifest the gift of tongues more than the Corinthians do. But on the heels of that remarkable claim comes a qualification. When he's ministering publicly in the church, Paul would rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 unintelligible words. That's quite the contrast, isn't it? And so in light of that contrast, we might ask the question, if Paul didn't speak all of these tongues when he was in church, where did he speak these tongues? Where was Paul speaking these tongues if not in the church? Well, I can only think of one reasonable answer to that question. He was speaking them privately in prayer to the Lord. You know, friends, after studying this text in some detail this week, reflecting on a variety of interpretations, I don't see how we could reasonably deny the private use of tongues. But yes, this seems to be the very hill that many non-charismatics want to die on. And to be frank, I find it puzzling. Some seem to object to the private usage on the basis of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, where we're told that the gifts of the Spirit are given for the building up of the body. 
But that seems to me to be a very weak and feeble objection since what builds up the Christian in his private devotional life will certainly be an advantage for the church family as a whole. And on top of that, we see in verses 26 and 27, tongues does have a role in building up the corporate body, providing that there is someone there to interpret what's being said. Paul is nowhere suggesting in this chapter that the gift of tongues can't be used to edify the church body as a whole, but he is saying it cannot accomplish that purpose if it's not being interpreted and explained. And so, friends, personally, I don't find the objections against the private use of tongues very persuasive at all. Indeed, this seems to be the very venue where Paul wants the gift to be manifested and where Paul himself was manifesting the gift. The gift of tongues is a gift given by the Spirit to assist the believer in private prayer and praise, either with interpretation or without it. And as you are being spiritually built up in your private prayer life, you will most certainly be a greater blessing and encouragement to the church family to which you belong. But, and here's the big but, if and when the gift of tongues is being used in the public setting, Paul insists strongly and absolutely dogmatically it cannot be manifested apart from interpretation. The reason for that is given to us in verses 6 to 12. Let's read those chap, those verses again. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is being played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is being said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. I think that the metaphors, the analogies Paul uses in these verses speak for themselves. The sound of a musical instrument being played without a discernible pattern is not useful to the listener. Every now and then, my two-year-old son likes to go and bang on the piano thinking that he's playing a song like his big brother. But it usually doesn't take long before I put the music making to rest because the melody is not edifying to anyone except for him. If I had stepped into the pulpit this morning and started to preach to you in French or in Latin, I can't say that I'd blame you if you got up and walked out the back door. That's not because I have anything against French or Latin, but because in this context, it would not be intelligible speech for the majority of you who have come into this place to hear the Word of God. Whenever we speak in a way that other people around us can't understand, we're not fostering unity. We're fostering division. In fact, that's the whole point of the story of Babel in the Old Testament when God judges and divides the people of earth on the basis of what? Language. And so to speak in tongues without the benefit of an interpreter is to make someone feel like a foreigner in the church of Jesus Christ. It is to make them feel as though they don't belong. That was exactly what was happening in the ancient church of Corinth. It's the reason why Paul got so upset. A group of spiritual elitists in the church were speaking in tongues even though they knew most of the people around them didn't have the foggiest clue what they were saying. And their motive in speaking these tongues wasn't to build up the body, it was merely to show off, to assert their own superiority. It was rude. It was inconsiderate. Because of that, Paul brings the hammer down in chapter 13. He tells them that all of their angelic tongue speaking is nothing more than a banging gong and a clanging cymbal. If it's not done in love, it is nothing more than an obnoxious and meaningless noise. But yet, in spite of all of the abuse, in spite of all of the spiritual pride, Paul doesn't forbid the public use of tongues. He simply tells the church, if you're going to use the gift publicly in church, you must do so with the benefit of an interpreter. 
And so clearly, friends, we see here in 1 Corinthians 14, the gift of tongues has a God-ordained purpose in edifying the church. It can edify the believer in private prayer. It can edify the body in corporate worship, providing that the interpretation is given in the public setting. But you know, all of that being stated, there's a second purpose to the gift of tongues that is not nearly as encouraging. For while the spiritual gift is certainly given to edify the Christian believer, there's another purpose in the life of a non-believer, but not what you might expect. Let's look again at verses 20 to 23. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues, by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are assigned not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is assigned not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your mind? You know, in my opinion, those are probably the most difficult and confusing verses in the chapter. Because in verse 22, Paul tells us tongues are assigned to the non-believer, but then in verse 23, he appears to contradict himself by saying that when non-believers hear the tongues speaking, they'll conclude that the people speaking them are in desperate need of a psychiatrist. And so we've got to ask ourselves in response to this difficulty what the apostle means when he says tongues are assigned for non-believers and not assigned for believers. Well, one thing we can say for sure on the basis of this teaching is that it certainly explodes the old Pentecostal notion that God has given tongues to the believer as the sign of spirit baptism. The founders of the Pentecostal movement believed that tongues was the sign of the so-called second blessing, but here in verse 22, Paul tells us exactly the opposite. Tongues have not been given as a sign for the believer, they've been given as a sign for the non-believer. And so then we need to ask the question, in what sense are they assigned for non-believers when the very next verse tells us that non-believers will think that we're insane when they hear them? Well, the answer to that question comes in verse 21, where the Apostle Paul uses an Old Testament verse to explain the gift of tongues. You can look this up this afternoon, and I'd encourage you to do so. But in verse 21, Paul is quoting from Isaiah 28, where the Lord is speaking a word of judgment upon ancient Israel. In His grace and kindness, God had sent Isaiah and a multitude of prophets to warn the people of Israel in a language that they could understand. But they rejected that message. They rebelled against God. And so God informs them through the prophet Isaiah, they are now going to go into Assyrian captivity where they will listen to foreign languages, foreign tongues from morning to night. Friends, the whole point of this Old Testament quotation is to show us the gift of tongues was not given was given not only to edify the church, but also to serve as a sign of judgment. And once we wrap our minds around that part of biblical teaching, we realize the gift has a darker purpose in the providence of God, and we understand what Paul means when he says they are a sign for the non-believer. You see, the non-Christian who comes into the church in a state of unbelief will simply be confirmed in that unbelief if he or she sits down in the pew and hears someone babbling away in a strange language that is not being interpreted. The non-believer will not be converted through the speaking of tongues, but will simply write off the Christians as a bunch of loonies and then will walk out the door under the wrath of God just as they walked in the door under the wrath of God. When it comes to non-Christians, the gift of tongues is a sign of judgment. If they are being spoken in the church and they are not being interpreted, the only thing that that is going to accomplish is to confirm the person in their unbelief. That's why Paul says it's not a good idea to do it. If you want people to be saved, if you want people to be drawn to Jesus Christ, don't speak to them in tongues they can't understand. Speak to them the truth of the Word of God in such a way that it will bring the Word of God to bear on the rational mind. You know, very often in the past I've wondered, why doesn't the Lord give the gift of tongues to missionaries so that it would be easier for them, that it would be less expensive for them to go over to other countries and to share the Gospel? 
But after reflecting deeply on this chapter over the past few months, I think my question's been answered. I've learned in this chapter, the gift of tongues was never given to the church for the purpose of evangelism. And unfortunately, what that means is that if God calls you to be a missionary, He's also called you to learn the language the hard way, just like everyone else. Even at Pentecost, the manifestations of tongues was not a means for evangelism since Peter did not speak in tongues during his sermon. He preached the sermon in Greek, which was the common language of his day. Now on the day of Pentecost, the gift of tongues edified the elect Jews who God later called to repentance, but it was also a sign of God's judgment upon the non-believing nation. And so we read in the book of Acts that while some of them were being edified and encouraged, others were simply being confirmed in their unbelief. They were mocking the apostles. They were laughing it off. They were claiming that these men had too much to drink. The time of Isaiah the prophet, foreign tongues were a sign of divine judgment. The same thing is true on the day of Pentecost. And so we are brought to see here in 1 Corinthians 14, the gift of tongues has a dark side and not merely a bright side. For the Christians, it can edify and encourage, but for the non-Christian, it will only confirm the unbelief that is already in the heart. Well, so far we've offered or at least attempted a biblical definition of tongues. We've spoken about the biblical purpose of tongues in edifying and also in proclaiming judgment. And now finally, I want to conclude our time in the Word by reviewing a handful of common beliefs about tongues that I do not believe are in line with the teaching of God's Word. One common belief about this gift that I once embraced but have since rejected is the belief that the gift of tongues is no longer available for Christians living today. Now, I make that statement this morning with the greatest respect, the greatest love in my heart for those who disagree with me. And also, I say it with the greatest conviction, this is not an issue that should ever divide us. Here at Rosedale, our statement of faith does not take a definite position when it comes to the ongoing validity of the gifts. And what that means is whether you agree or you disagree with what I have taught this morning, you can still remain a member of this church. And I can still remain a member of the church for teaching what I've taught this morning. Practically, this also means you're free to use the gift of tongues. As long as you're using it in a biblical way, as long as you're showing respect for the practical boundaries and guidelines that are put in place by the leadership of this church. And as far as I can tell from the history of Rosedale, the gift of tongues has never been manifested publicly on Sunday morning, so there has never been a need among the elders to address any of those types of guidelines. And so I'll just say we will cross that bridge if and when it ever arises. Now in holding the view that I've taught this morning, I realize I am departing on this point of doctrine from the convictions of many of my Protestant forebears who lived before the rise of Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement. Many of the older Reformed preachers and theologians who I consider to be spiritual giants and far more capable men than myself would strongly disagree with me on this subject. Let me give you some names. John Calvin, Martin Luther, Charles Hodge, John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, Benjamin Warfield, Charles Spurgeon, Sinclair Ferguson, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur. All of those men are on the other side of the issue. I have nothing but respect and admiration for all of those men, but I'll take comfort this morning in the fact that not one of them is infallible and that most of them were also wrong when it came to baptism. At the end of the day, I still think I'm in good company with the likes of Martin Lloyd-Jones, J.I. Packer, D.A. Carson, John Piper, Wayne Grudem, Mark Dever, and Alistair Begg. No matter what position you take on these gifts, it's possible to heap up the names of great expositors who agree with you, but at the end of the day, the only authority that should define our beliefs and convictions as Christians is the authority of God's Word. We do not stand on the authority of fallible men, however great and godly they may be. We stand on the authority of the Word. And quite frankly, I don't believe the Word of God teaches that any spiritual gift, with the one exception of apostleship, has passed off the scene. 
As we talked about last Sunday, 1 Corinthians 13 indicates the gifts of the Spirit will continue to function until the perfect arrives, and I'm fully persuaded in my own mind and heart the perfect is a reference to the return of Christ. It is a reference to that future day yet to come when we will see clearly, when we will know fully, even as we're fully known. Second unbiblical conclusion about tongues is the teaching of historic Pentecostalism that all believers must speak in tongues as a sign that they've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. This perspective rests on a flawed understanding of holiness, a flawed understanding of spirit baptism, a flawed understanding of the meaning and significance of Pentecost. Very clearly, we're told by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, not all speak in tongues. We're also informed in chapter 14, tongues have been given as a sign not for believers, but for non-believers. And so, friends, any effort to divide Christian men and women into different spiritual classes on the basis of tongues is precisely what was happening in ancient Corinth. It falls under the condemnation of the Apostle Paul. And I praise God that this form of teaching is not nearly as widespread as it once was, and that's true even among our Pentecostal brothers and sisters. I don't want to slander any of my Pentecostal friends this morning. Many of them no longer believe this doctrine and would tell you that they no longer believe it. And so we need to recognize and to celebrate that this morning. Third conclusion about tongues that goes against the teaching of God's Word is the view that tongues is one of the most important gifts of the Spirit. For as we've seen today, and we'll see again next time, the gift of prophecy is far more desirable, and especially when it is being used in public and in the corporate setting. Far better, the Apostle Paul says, to speak five intelligible words than 10,000 unintelligible ones. And then finally, those who believe the gift of tongues should not be governed and controlled in the church of Jesus Christ are in serious error. I don't think there's any question whatsoever where Paul stood on this issue. And if you ever walk into a so-called Christian church where men and women are speaking or singing or praying in tongues without any order or interpretation being given, the very best thing that you can do is turn around and walk out the door. Because the God that we worship, brothers and sisters, is not a God of chaos and disorder. He is a holy God. He is not a God who will be mocked by counterfeit gifts and by chaotic nonsense. And so the Holy Spirit tells us very plainly, if any speak in a tongue, let there only be two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Well, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. That's all I'm going to say about tongues this morning. But come back next week, round two, we're going to be talking about the gift of prophecy.